Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm your host, Bill Arnold. Awfully glad to have this hour with you because I've got Dr. Mark Muska in studio. And of course, you know, that's Ask the Professor Hour. And <laughs> that means you can ask questions. So let me know what they are. You can uh, send me a text to 877-933-2484. I know you've got a question about the Bible. I know you've come across something in Scripture that just didn't make sense to you or you want some clarification or what does this mean or I thought I, I thought I understood this and now I don't. Would you help me? And Mark's got 99.9% of the answers. So just give us a call, 877-933-2484. And uh, I'm anxious to get your questions into the program today. So, Mark, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thanks. You know, I always uh, like to talk about terms every once in a while because, you know, people who are new believers are so- sometimes going to come up against terms that... They don't know. They don't understand a word like um, atonement. What would that yeah. mean? Just not just new believers. There's a lot of pew sitters all their lives, and they don't know what they mean either. Okay. They nod and smile. They say it's something good, but what is it? <laughs> Who knows? You know. And it goes the other way too. You know, exactly. something like blasphemy. Yeah, they bad. know it's bad, but yeah. they don't know exactly what it is. So. All right. So we talk about the difference between uh, um, atonement and expiation. Yeah, and these are theological terms that we use. Um, the, there's some biblical basis for them. In the Old Testament especially, it's associated with sacrifices uh, to atone for sin. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we call uh, one of the theological terms we use for the significance of Christ's death is uh, the significance of the atonement and uh, the substitutionary atonement. Sometimes that's used uh, Depending on who you're talking to, Bill, the atonement will be defined in you know subtly different ways. I see it as roughly equivalent to forgiveness. That forgiveness means that our our sin debt is canceled and the penalty is canceled. I really like using a banking illustration for that. That you may have a loan out for sixty gazillion dollars, and if a ban uh, a bank forgives that, they cancel that debt. It's gone. And there's no penalties that you pay. And so atonement, uh, some scholars will try to make a case to say, well, atonement only covers sin. It doesn't take it away. And I don't know. Uh, maybe there's some truth to that, but uh, that uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's worth splitting the hairs quite that narrowly. Now, expiation in different traditions, it means different things. It carries with it the idea of cleansing mm-hmm. or being washed, uh, being uh, cleansed from sin. And so it's closely related to atonement. It's one of the... Uh, after effects, one of the benefits of atonement is that we're cleansed. And uh, water baptism, terrific illustration of that, that our sins are washed away. It is a symbol uh, for this uh, cleansing that takes place when we put our faith in the gospel. Mm-hmm. 
What about the word regenerate? Yeah, regenerate, if you just unpack it a little bit, re means to do something again. Mm -hmm. And then if you say generate, well, generators produce electricity. Mm -hmm. If you generate something, you create something, you make something. And so uh, Genesis is full of this idea of generating. God generates the the creation and the and life. So to be regenerated means to be uh, recreated. Uh, reborn is a great way to use this. And everybody thinks of John 3 there with Nicodemus when Jesus says, you must be born again mm-hmm. to see the kingdom of God. And so uh, I like that term a lot, Bill, because it gets away from this thing. We've talked about this before, but it's worth bringing it up again mm-hmm. that uh, Christianity isn't just some personal reformation kind of a thing, a self-help thing where you come in and you're kind of a schlock and now with being a Christian, you're a little nicer guy. You know, you treat people <laughs> a little better mm-hmm. and you don't, you know, cuss out the mm-hmm. television when you don't like what's going on. Right. You're just kind of a better guy. Uh, regeneration carries with it the idea of a whole new rebirth, that you are a new person. And for many Christians, this is just blatantly obvious. I put myself in that category because I was a BC guy mm-hmm. before the gospel. And so I put my faith in the gospel and I just changed like crazy. And I wasn't even trying to. It mm-hmm. was happening to me and I was trying to understand it myself. Mm-hmm. But then you get some of these uh, students at Northwestern, for example, in other Christian schools, they're church rats. They've been going to church since nine months before they were born. Mm-hmm. They got perfect attendance in the cradle role. You know, right. I mean, they threw the twig in the fire when they were in, in <laughs> at youth group and all that. They've always been saying yes to Jesus. So yeah. they really don't have much of a former life, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, to compare with now the new life in Christ when they put their faith in the gospel. And so it's a little more challenging for them to under to grasp that. Of course. Of a whole new birth taking place. But I love that about the term regeneration. I love it too. Not something minor here. This is God picks you up and turns you upside down and puts you back down again. Mm -hmm. It is a whole new life that begins. And Mark, would you explain sanctification? Because I mean, what you just said, I think triggered the thought of sanctification. Yeah. Uh, Sanctification is a word uh, that is related to a couple other words that we use all the time. It's it's, um, related to the word holy or holiness. It's also related to the word consecrate, that all three of those ideas come from uh, similar terms in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So to sanctify literally means to make something holy. The word holy, uh, a lot of people uh, associate that with sinless purity. If you're a holy person, you don't sin. God is holy. He never sins. Now, that's one of the reasons God's holy. But a better, uh, more direct way to understand holiness is using the term different or I even like using the word unique, that God is holy because he is unique. When you compare him to all other gods and idols, he's one of a kind. Mm-hmm. He's the only one that's omnipotent. He's the only one that's love, perfect love. All, you know, all his attributes are what make him different or unique. And so when it talks about us being sanctified or made holy, we talk about it in two or three different stages. And even in the New Testament, Bill, uh, the word is used in these contexts where, first of all, we are sanctified the moment we put our faith in the gospel and we're regenerated, we become a follower of Christ, because now we are different from a couple different things. We're different from our former way of life that we lived, 
we're a new person, and we're also different from the world around us. We belong to God now. We've inherited all these things from him because of Jesus. So there's an initial sanctification, the theologians like to call it, that takes place Bam, whether you know it or not, when you put your faith in the gospel, you're mm-hmm. sanctified. Mm-hmm. And so it's like past tense. You have been sanctified when you put your faith in the gospel. The way most people think about it in the church, though, is the continuous sanctification thing, where when you're a newly minted Christian, the uh, Peter uses this term for it at, at the beginning or at the end of First Peter 1, where he says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, that it's very appropriate to call somebody a baby Christian if they've just put their faith in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And just like babies, you hope that they grow and mature to adulthood or maturity. Same thing with sanctification. That is that process of maturing as a Christian. And the goal, the model that's used for that is Christ himself. And so we are, we are aiming at maturity, and that means it's Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. We become like Christ and in several different respects. We think like Christ. We see the world around us like Christ. Obviously, we behave like Christ, but that is the goal of that uh, ongoing or continuous uh, sanctification. I like the way Paul says it about his own ministry as an apostle. I just looked it up here in, in Colossians 1. Uh, listen to what he says here in verse 28. He says, We, we apostles, proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And the word there for complete means finished. You're done. You've become mature as a Christian. So that continuous process of sanctification is one we're on from the moment we start believing the gospel until we take our last breath. And then at that point, some theologians will call this final sanctification, where we are once and for all separated from this world when we die and go to be with Christ and with God. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you can use that term in all three of those respects mm-hmm. when you talk about being sanctified. All right. What about the word redeem? Yeah, rede- redemption uh, carries, the, uh, it carries the idea of being purchased, uh, I like the way that um, this shows up in the the uh, vision that John is having in the book of Revelation uh, when uh, the angel is showing him around and all all these uh, creatures are are uh, worshiping God and uh, in Revelation five nine uh, the Lamb who was slain has just taken the book from from God and now when he takes the book. The four living creatures, 24 elders, they fall down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, and listen to what they sing, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased, redeemed, purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So it's the idea of being purchased. Honestly, Bill, I like to try to get this across to my students to say your fundamental identity as a Christian should be that you belong to God. He has purchased you. You are now his 
slave, his servant. And I know that's not real popular analogy to use because it has such horrible ramifications with what slavery has been in the world over the centuries. But it is a biblical idea that he has purchased us. We now commit ourselves to please our master. He is the one that we live for. Mm, I love it. It's very vivid, but again, it is controversial. So we a lot of times, we belong to him. Yeah, that's your that's your identity. Yeah. over anything else, yeah, you have got the stamp of God upon you, and you belong to him. That's powerful. It love is. it, Mark Mosca. You can get edified thinking about that kind of stuff. You I know? just did. Mm-hmm. It works. I didn't have to think about it. It just happened. Wow, kabang! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. All right, I know you've got questions. Let me know what they are. Send them over via text. If you're a little bit more comfortable with email, you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com, bill at myfaithradio.com, and I'll get your questions on the air. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the Professor is the segment. Do not miss out. We'll be right back. live and in person with Dr. Mark Muska, so I'm a happy guy. I always love uh, seeing Mark, and we are chatting about uh, the Bible. Anything you would like to ask Mark, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. No, Mark, my brain has always done this little role of filling stuff in that maybe necessarily is never accurate. For example, when you think of something like Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. My mm-hmm. my human mind would go, hmm, I think God had to go back to like the uh, the drawing room and figure out what, what the next plan was. Yeah. But Jesus Gabriel, was going to... Gabriel, hand me plan B. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus was going to become human from the beginning of time. Right. But my brain never really went there right away. Oh, sure. Don't worry about it. Everybody gets absolutely tied in knots trying, okay. to, trying to comprehend that. Yeah. So why... Why did God not walk through the garden as Eve was going to the tree? I mean, you go that that could have been that could have saved a lot of stuff. <laughs> Educators would tell you that he's got to give Eve the freedom to make her choice. Okay. And he can't be hovering over him all the time, you know, like helicopter parents or something like that. So mm-hmm. he could have easily taken that serpent and just zap, and that would have been it for him. So, uh, but this is uh, this is part of the. Uh, both the opportunity and responsibility we have as human beings is to make moral choices. Mm-hmm. And so he gave her the freedom to do it. Yeah. I think it'd be meaningful. We chatted about this during the break, but if we, I think I want to do this as a series on the show is, is do a kind of a comprehensive um, way of talking about each book in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Because if you have someone that comes up to you and says, Hey Mark, uh, do, how do you understand the book of revelation? And you have two minutes to answer. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of response would Mark Muska give to that question? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if someone asked me, I'd, I'd feel a little panicky. Yeah. 
in a couple minutes? Uh, that's uh, it's a very difficult one too, uh, Bill, because there's a wide variety of ways in which the Book of Revelation is is read mm-hmm. and interpreted. And so, I'd love to give you, you know, straight from Sinai to you, you know, <laughs> God's uh, God's uh, understanding of that. But uh, there's no less than four or five different whole schools of inter- interpretation of what that. Uh, what that includes. Right. Uh, some of it reads the book of Revelation uh, very literally, that these things being described are actual historical events that are going to take place in the future. So sometimes this one is called the futurist view mm-hmm. of the book of Revelation. And then you have those who read the book as uh, highly symbolic and uh, more allegories that there are figures of speech used and scenarios set up that aren't real, but they're intended to teach something about uh, the church. Uh, one theory has it about teaching the church in the first century that John lived in and understanding what the pressures and the opposition uh, the church faced then. Uh, another historical view on this, we'll see Revelation as a... Uh, a uh, explanation of what's happened with the church through the centuries for the mm-hmm. last 2,000 years. So it's very da- uh, dangerous. I see a lot of uh, uh, symbolism and allegory in the book of Revelation. You, you just, I mean, if you're paying attention, you see this when you have uh, beasts with uh, all kinds of eyes and heads and crowns and all this, that uh, it's very uh, difficult to take that as uh, literal. There has to be symbolic uh, significance to that stuff. But yet there is enough in the book that is written as a narrative. So it sounds like a story of what in particular is going to happen near the end. Because of Revelation 19, this is where Jesus returns in great power and glory. And he brings with him the saints, uh, those who follow him. uh, And he comes and he destroys the evil on the earth. Revelation 20 talks about a final judgment where everyone is brought before the throne of God to give account of their lives. Uh, that uh, there may be symbolism in the way that's that's expressed, but it sounds like real stuff that's coming in the future. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the, the book of Revelation is uh, Jesus' way to explain to John and to the churches because he addresses several churches in Asia Minor there in the first couple chapters, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, uh, but to teach them about being faithful now because of what's coming and the accountability that is associated with that. And most of what's coming is the glorified Christ ruling the earth and destroying all evil. So how you time that out from the first century all the way to 2020, we can argue like crazy about that, Mm -hmm. Uh, that we may not be able to work the details out. But that's, uh, I encourage people to read Revelation and just look for how the Son of God is being glorified in that. There are so many prayers of praise and adoration for the Lord Jesus Christ in there. And it's really edifying to read these of what they say time and time again in the book about him and they worship him. So. Mm Mark, when you're teaching, you've been here 35 years, right, mm-hmm. teaching? So when you are instructing uh, students in class, and maybe this is just an idea that I think is a good idea, but is it important to have a summary understanding of a book before you get into it? I don't know about before you get into it. I mean, dive into the Bible and, of and read stuff, you yeah. know. And But it is very valuable to have that overview that you were talking about earlier. 
to be able to understand the message of these books and the, the main reason why they were written. Because if you study them carefully, you can work that out. Mm-hmm. It, it's not that difficult. But uh, many churches and uh, institutions don't really emphasize that. They'll get down to a verse or a paragraph, and they'll chew that up and figure out uh, the best they can the interpretation of it and how to apply it in their lives. And that's all great. I'm never going to criticize that. But there's a great value in understanding the whole of the story of these books. And then even from that, Bill, how the books come together to send the message that God intended to give us the purpose of the Bible, the message of the Bible. Mm -hmm. I'm just finishing up this week. uh, We have our mid-semester break coming this weekend, and I'm just finishing up one course that I've taught for a number of years. We call it Progress of Redemption at Northwestern. And in seven weeks, we go from Genesis to Revelation. We hit the whole thing. And it's an overview, obviously, to Mm -hmm. do it that fast, 20 class sessions and to cover the whole Bible. But I can see it that the students are getting a sense for the whole and the message there. Mm. Uh, This book is about uh, God's wonderful creation that's been corrupted by sin, and now God has put a plan into the works that takes itself through Israel in the Old Testament and through the Messiah in the New Testament. And we just finished on Monday. The culmination of all that is when Jesus returns, sin is banished, and we spend all of eternity with him. So that's uh, that's really helpful. We've seen that as an important curricular part of our students' understanding of the scriptures to get that whole. I had a really good teacher that used to say, if you can't explain to me the book of Genesis in five minutes, Please don't make me sit and have to try and, and hear you have to try to do it in five hours, hmm. because then you really don't understand the book as a whole if you can't explain it that way. Hmm. Thank you for that. A question from nope. a listener. I have a question about Hebrews eight okay. about the old covenant will be obsolete. Can you explain hmm. the verse Hebrews eight thirteen? Mm-hmm. And I have it right here, Mark. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Yeah. I tease my students sometimes. It's self-deprecating humor, but I, I tell them that the old covenant is kind of like me and their attitude about me. That it's, <laughs> it's old, obsolete, fading, and mm-hmm. ready to disappear. Okay. But the, the context for this in Hebrews 8 is that the author here is talking about the new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated. And that new covenant is recorded in Jeremiah 31 And if you look in Hebrews 8, uh, the writer here quotes it (laughs) from Hebrews 8, from verse 8 all the way uh, through uh, verse uh, uh, 12. That's right out of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, that uh, Jeremiah records here about this new time coming. Uh, And... uh, Uh, Jesus is the one who inaugurates this. And he says at the beginning of the thing, he says that uh, the reason this new covenant has come and the reason it's better is because it's got better promises to it. That's in verse 6. He says, But now God has ordained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. 
which has been enacted on better promises. So instead of offering, offering animal sacrifices, which can never take away sin, he tells us in Hebrews 10, one sacrifice for all time provides forgiveness of sin for the whole human race. And so the, the whole point of Hebrews 1 through 9 is to demonstrate the superiority of Christ. And that's one of the things that makes him superior. He has ordained a new, better covenant. Fantastic. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Let me know what your questions are for the professor, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. You're also welcome to email me, Bill, at myfaithradio.com. Bill at myfaithradio.com or 877-93-FAITH. p.m. on Faith Radio. back with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor whatever you like, 877-933-2484. You've been wondering what a passage means or how to get a better understanding of it. Now's the time to ask. Go ahead and let me know what it is. I'll ask on your behalf, 877-933-2484. All right, Mark, here's a question that came in. Does the Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Church use the same Bible as the Roman Catholic Church? That's what I'm going to have to look up on, uh, yeah, Bill. I, I don't, don't know about that one really either. know. I know that the Roman Catholic Bible is different from the Protestant Bible. Mm-hmm. It has uh, more books in it and more passages, but I have never really looked at the scriptures that the Orthodox Church uses. It's uh, typical in North America here, we don't have that much influence of the Orthodox Church. It's growing a little bit because of immigration, but um, I've, I have to plead ignorance on that one. That's okay. I, I don't know. Yeah. If you read Psalm 37, verse 4, that says, mm-hmm. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, let's put that in context. What is that verse telling us? Well, there's the, the term delight and desire is used in there. Uh, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desire of your heart. And so... Uh, does is this uh, a magic way to get what you want? Is to say, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna delight in the Lord. I'll go to worship services and I'll throw some money in the thing and and uh, do these things, and then He'll give me what I want. And usually it goes in the direction of something like what Janis Joplin used to sing back in the 1960s. You know, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? <laughs> yeah. My friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. You know, I mean, uh, people want stuff, and so they think this is the key to getting it, is to delight in the Lord. I take it that the emphasis here is of, of verse 5. He says, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness 
as a light and your judgment as the noonday. Uh, so he's talking here. He's The psalmist is emphasizing a love for God that takes first place in the person's life. And then these other things fall into line, the things that you need, the desires you have in your heart. Because uh, I can testify to this, a lot of Christians can who have uh, walked with the Lord for a while, is that you even see your desires evolve and mutate as you grow closer to Christ. That some things that you thought you wanted so badly when you're first a Christian, as you grow, it's like, well, I'm not so sure about that anymore. This is really more important to me. Mm-hmm. And so it's the idea that when you delight in God, he will shape your desires even and what is important to you so that you will see things. It gets back to this thing about becoming more Christ-like. You start seeing things like Christ sees them and uh, your uh, outlook on other people and the world around us. It, it changes. It evolves as you grow in Christ, as you delight in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mark, would this be a reasonable prayer in response to Psalm 37.4, where it says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Would this be a reasonable prayer to say, Heavenly Father, these are the desires of my heart, and if these would not be um, beneficial to my soul and my spiritual well-being, start removing these desires? Yeah, they're changing them, sure. They're changing them? I think it's great. Okay. Might as well admit it. He knows already that those are your desires, and so might as well get it out there on the table. Mm-hmm. So, I like that because uh, I want to start studying um, everything I can learn about prayer in Scripture. And yeah, there are so many verses that feel like it's a credit card to charge what you charge up what you want. Yep, yep. And you can you can twist God's promises that way. I talk to a lot of my students about this, and one of the things I try to have them do, just kind of as an experiment, is that spend some time in prayer with the Lord and be as honest with Him as you can about what you're thinking and feeling and the things that are going on in your life. And you know how many students struggle with that, Bill? Oh, man, you know, I really tell God what I'm really thinking about, you know, all this kind of stuff. They struggle with it because we've, we've uh, made a caricature of prayer that you only say it when you make a sign in front of your face or when it's a, a prayer like the Lord's Prayer or uh, you've you got to pray right when you pray. And I don't like that. I think that's a, that's a, a, a contrived sense of prayer. Prayer is us communicating with God, and it's communicating with Him like He's my friend and my companion, and so I share everything with him. I talk to him about everything that's going on in my life, and no holds barred, don't hold back. And uh, for many people, it's therapeutic. It's a relief to be honest with God about what's happening, including some of your failures and desires that you realize aren't really pleasing to the Lord, but you've got them. And so, you know, talk to him about it. Don't hide it from him like, you know, he's not going to know if you don't say anything. Mm-hmm. There's there's just, I don't know, I, I, I would, I, I'm with you, Bill, about thinking about prayer. I think we have to have a whole revolution in the church about what this is. In fact, I'd just assume get rid of the P word and find another word for this that we could reassemble a, a uh, practice that would be much more real and personal between us and God. Mm-hmm. You know? So maybe call it commune with God, but that's kind of been wrecked too. I mean, we, we got we to gotta <laughs> yeah. find a word that just doesn't have all these historical trappings yeah, to it. Yeah, no kidding. So, so um, that, that's such a good point. Um, I did lose my train of thought there for a minute because you said okay. something very interesting that I wanted to remember, and then I thought— it's gone. 
Yeah, I already forgot my my next point. Um, That's was, okay. You can sing something while you think about no, it. That's okay. It was about prayer, though. Okay. Uh, and I, I think it's important that I try to remember this, but okay. it'll come to me later, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you got my phone number. Just call me. I do have your phone number, which I appreciate mm-hmm. having. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you talk about uh, the difference between mercy and grace? Oh, there's uh, there's fun Sunday school stuff you can do with that. Okay. With grace and mercy. Grace is a fancy word for a gift. If God gives you salvation as a gift, that is his grace extended toward you. If he redeems you, he does it because you didn't earn it, because he's given it to you as a gift. I love to think of grace as a package that's wrapped up real pretty, and it's got your name on it. Okay. And it's a gift to you. Now, mercy is when... He shows compassion, and actually the word that's used in the Scripture for this is pity. Uh, to, to mercy or to have compassion means to pity where he, uh, he understands our shortcomings, but he doesn't, he doesn't punish us the way he could for those things. So instead of judging us and casting us away from himself because he's perfectly sinless, he, by his mercy, he provided a path for us to be forgiven so that we could know him and we could call him Father. And mm-hmm. so the Sunday school thing that we use on this, the two little ditties for it, uh, Rebecca's nodding already because she knows what I'm going to say, is that grace is when we receive what we don't deserve and mercy is when we don't receive what we do deserve. <laughs> and so that, I mean, even a third grader could keep that one. You know, that, that works. But there's tremendous truth to that. Yeah. Those two work in tandem with one another. Glory to God. Yeah, I remember the prayer point I had to make. Okay. One anxiety we never have to have is that, is God listening? Yep. He's always listening. He's always listening. It's so hard to get people's attention in this world, yet the creator of the universe listens to every word you say. That's just incomprehensible, but it's glorious. Mm-hmm. If the Holy Spirit truly is the paraclete, is the one who's called alongside our companion, he's there all the time. I, honestly, Bill, I like to start my prayers sometimes if it, this gets a little fuzzy, and I just say to God, I thank you, God, that you always hear me, no, no matter what's going on, no matter where I am, no matter, no matter when I'm talking to you, that I, I've got your ear and that uh, you respond. Thank you for that. You hear my prayers no matter what. It's literally just spectacular thought. It is. It is. Yeah. All right. Here's a question that shows up in oh. several Gospels. Okay. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, what did Jesus mean when he said, take up your cross and follow me? Hmm? Um, was it a burden that you must is you must no. carry? I don't think so. Is it a thankless so. job? The, the passage I usually read for that is in Mark chapter 8, where... Um, 834, Yeah, perhaps? it starts in 34 there, that uh, Peter... Uh, just got done being rebuked by Jesus uh, for uh, not wanting Jesus to go to the cross. But then I'll just read the passage here. It says, And Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. But whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit someone to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will someone give in exchange for his soul? So 
that I link up verses 35 through 37 with verse 34 when he says, take up your cross, pick it and follow me. It's like he's saying, first stop Calvary. This is called death to self. It's Mm -hmm. not called carrying some burden through your life. You know, my burden in life is that rat husband of mine, you know, (laughs) something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, you might have trouble with your husband, but this means death to self. And I love it, Bill, because here Jesus is using the most extreme analogy to make his point that we completely surrender to him. And I'll get back to that thing about we're his possession. We are his servants. We belong to him. And so everything goes to God. And how much more drastic can it be than death to self? That Jesus doesn't want your left arm. He doesn't want your firstborn child. He doesn't want your car out in the parking lot. He wants it all. It's all his or nothing. Death to self. And so that... Uh, that makes this such a radical thing that Jesus is saying here. Uh, by saying, you know, if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. We as Christians, we win by losing, by going and and taking up the cross and dying to self as Jesus did. That's what opens the door to a whole new life, that regeneration thing uh, we talked about. Uh, I love the uh, the, the uh, devotional books, Bill, of A.W. Tozer, and I wish I had it in front of me right now because uh, one of his devotional books, uh, Tozer was an old pastor that died back in 1963. He's been gone a long time, but people still read his devotionals because they're so good. Mm. And uh, one of his devotionals is called, called The Root of the Righteous, and in there he has the single most powerful devotional reading I've ever read. It's only about three pages, but it's called The Cross is a Radical Thing. And he goes through the whole thing about the cross. He says, the cross was an instrument of death. It had one goal, to kill as quickly as possible the person that was put on it. It didn't compromise. It didn't bargain. It killed the person that was on it. And when Jesus, fully knowing that, says to us, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And then he says the very famous quote where Tozer says, we must do one of two things only when faced with the cross, either die upon it or flee from it. And that is absolutely right. There is no third alternative there. And so that's that's the radical nature of this imagery that Jesus uses by uh, talking about uh, crucifixion of self. Wow. All right. Let me take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. Let me know what your question is. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. All right, Mark, let's get let's get going here. We've got lots of questions. Okay. Is the books Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah the same time frame? Approximately. No? They okay. are, uh, especially Daniel and Ezekiel, sometimes they're called the exile prophets because they were prophesying uh, just before and then during the, uh, the exile of, of the Jews to Babylon. 
Uh, this took place, uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and took them into exile in 586 B.C., and they all came back later on that century, about 535, 520 or so. But Daniel most likely was just a young man when he went to Babylon, and then Ezekiel, probably a little older guy, uh, he was, uh, but the, it, it was both during the exile period of time. So think like late 600s into the 500s. And then Jeremiah is right in that ballpark too, maybe a little bit older than the two of them. Jeremiah was prophesying in the 600s. And then when uh, he was prophesying that the exile would take place and Jerusalem would be destroyed, but then uh Nebuchadnezzar refused to take him into exile into Babylon, and so he was forced by the Jews remaining in Jerusalem to go to Egypt, and that was bad because uh, Jeremiah had delivered a prophecy to them. Uh, They asked him if they should go to Egypt or not, and Jeremiah told them, no, stay here in Jerusalem. If you go to Egypt, you'll never come back, and they rejected that, and then they took him with them to Egypt, and he never came back either. So, But you're talking all three of those late 600s into the 500s. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, would you comment on Romans 13 in the context of today's politics and protests? Yeah, this is a, a something that we really wrestle with in the church, is how, our relationship to the government, uh, how we're supposed to behave as followers of Christ. And uh, let me just read it for you, because in Romans 13, 1, uh, Paul writes, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they will have opposed, uh, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And it goes on from there. So, but this is one of several passages. Uh, another one that's very important is over in First Peter chapter 2, when he talks about um, the relationship of the, of the church to uh, the governing authorities as well. Let me just get over to a couple of those verses and throw those in with Romans 2. This is the way you develop a teaching. You just don't go with one passage in the Bible. You try to pull together as many as you can mm-hmm. that teach on the same subject and put together something so that you can, uh, uh, you can understand God's uh, uh, mind. So, uh, verse 12, 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So there you go. Mm -hmm. And so this, we have to try to work it out living here in the United States in 2020 of what that means to subject ourselves to these governing authorities. It's very similar to the discussion we have when we talk about wives submitting to their husbands or children submitting to their parents. Uh, that subjection and submitting thing is worth a, a, a good a long discussion. And I, I'm afraid we won't be able to do it in the time we have here. Right. But that's the key to this. How do we show our subjection to the governing authorities and the rule of law 
in the United States, and yet we still have rights as Americans to be able to contribute to that government. It isn't just some king that mm-hmm. rules over us. So how does that play into the whole thing? So I can clearly see Christians saying we can protest things when we see injustices or we see that laws need to change if we do it respectfully. Uh, I have great respect for the pro-life movement, for example. So many of these pro-lifers, they would violate the law on purpose, a trespassing in some of these abortion clinics, but then they were willing to accept the consequences of that mm-hmm. and pay the fine or go to jail or whatever it was, but they were trying to make a higher point. Mm-hmm. That was done submissively, even though they weren't doing what the law told them to do. So this is a really interesting discussion. Yeah. I wish we talked more at this level and uh, among Christians in the United States today and didn't just get on our, our soapboxes about specific issues and candidates and all this kind of thing. That tends to polarize us and get us mad with each other. That's true. Next question, Mark, comes out of Matthew five twenty two. But yep. I tell you yep. that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What is this first name? Yeah, I, I love this, because, you know, you got siblings that are worried <laughs> about this, you know, yeah. because, the, you know, the, it's whoever calls them a fool or empty head or you good for nothing, I mean, mm-hmm. all the labels here, uh, Jesus is making a point. In this passage, he's saying, you're so happy if you keep the law that you don't murder somebody, but you got to realize it's more than actually shedding blood. It's in your heart and the way you speak to people and your attitude about them. He lifts the law against murder way higher than just shedding somebody's blood. That's bad enough, but you're also guilty if you are not loving your your friend, your family member, your neighbor, or whatever it is. So uh, this is uh, uh, an illustration. He goes right on from this to talk about adultery. He says, you know, don't commit adultery, but if a man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the actions. It's the thoughts. It's the, the heart that's in it. What happened to the demons that went into the herd of pigs by Jesus? Beats me. Okay, good. Let's move on. Uh, very unhappy <laughs> pigs. So. <laughs> Yeah. First um, John three nine. I've always wondered about mm-hmm. this verse. First John three nine. Here we go. New, no New one Testament. who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. This is the idea of not just sin. Period. Otherwise, we're all toast because we all still struggle to resist temptation, even after we've put our faith in the gospel. We have taken up our cross and died on it as followers of Christ, we're still still liable to temptation. Uh, John admits this in the second chapter. I love the way he starts. First John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But then look what he says. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's, this is one end of the teeter-totter here where he's saying, if you practice sin, if you go on doing this seemingly with no conscience about it, you you, you got to reevaluate everything here. Because if you're born of God, the seed of God abides in you, you're not going to continue on with this kind of sin that way. Mm-hmm. But, oh boy, that gets into its own stuff too, Bill. I wish we had time to talk about the idea of habitual temptation or those two or three areas most of us have, but mm-hmm. we don't want to admit it, mm-hmm. that we struggle with. If you look at the scorecard of resisting temptation, it's like three wins and 36,000 losses mm-hmm. that we have. We stumble all the time. 
Boy, do we need to talk about that because yeah. so many good, well-meaning Christians have such a sense of guilt about that because they struggle. Yeah. And it's usually just in two or three areas. It's not in every area of their life, mm-hmm. but they've just got a weakness. You know, for some people, it's that chocolate cake, you know, and they just can't say no mm-hmm. to it. And so they struggle and they think they don't belong to God. All right, my next question okay. is about genealogies of Jesus and Matthew and Luke. My yeah. Bible says uh, both from Joseph's line, but they differ. Just curious about this. Yeah, this is a fun question. I don't know if we can answer all the questions about it, but if you, uh, if our if our listeners want to look at this for themselves, look at the genealogies. Uh, first of all, in Matthew chapter 1, we get the genealogy of Jesus right from the start in the book. And then in Luke chapter 3, there is another genealogy. And if you look carefully, I'll just give you a little hint about it, that uh, when you get through the genealogy, the place where it parts company with one another, the genealogies, is with David and his son. Because in Matthew 1, if you look carefully, it says, I'm trying to get over there so I can give you the exact verse of it, but it talks about the uh, uh, David Jesus is descended from David in verse 6. And then it says, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. And then Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. This is the royal line. You're going to recognize these names because these are the kings. Uh, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and so forth down the line all the way to Joseph. In Luke's gospel, though, when it gets to, uh, when it gets to David, then it it goes different because it says the, the David is the son of Jesse, but then it says Nathan is the son of David, and then Mattatha, and then Mena, and we don't recognize any of these names. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening here, my best guess at it, and I, there is some scholarly support for this bill, is, is that both Mary and Matthew were related to each other. They were probably like 32nd cousins to, to one another. Mary and, 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 did I say Matthew? Mary and Joseph, I'm okay. sorry. Mary and Joseph, and the the lines deviated at David there, where Mary was descended from uh, Nathan here, and uh, Joseph was descended from Solomon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sure wouldn't, you know, sort of stake my life on that, but it's the best I can do with this to make sense out of it, that Mary had the bloodline of King David. Remember, that's so important that the Messiah has to be descended from David, and so he fits the bill both through Mary's line as well as through uh, Joseph's line. Mm-hmm. Mark, thank you so much for being here. I always like uh, our wow. time together, and I know look at we're already done i love it when people ask questions yeah when they're curious you know curiosity kills cats but it's great for christians yeah you're not free to go home and have dinner i'm gonna do it all right dr mark musk has been my guest thank you for the great questions Uh, i had a little bit of technical difficulty so i didn't get to all of them i apologize for that but i've saved them and i will have them the next time mark is on the show so thank you uh, for all of your suggestions and great questions that wraps up the show and i look forward already to our time tomorrow have a great night and i'll see you soon Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.